Welcome to the Justin News Podcast. My name is Justin Cross, and today my guest, she is a scientist, a lecturer, a rock climber, and she is a candidate running for the United States Senate in the great state of Colorado. If she wins, she would be the first scientist and the first female U.S. Senator from the state of Colorado. Trish Zornio, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, I will say this right now, Trish, uh, I, I interview a lot of different candidates and, you know, like there are some really great people, a lot of great candidates, but I'll say like, Oh, they're from the great state of, let's say Florida. And, uh, and I'm lying because, (laughs) you know, I'm from there. It's okay. I mean, we like meth, but, um, but Colorado is actually a beautiful state. I, I really mean that it's a great state. Like, and you are, from what I understand, you're, like I said, you're a rock climber. Like, you're very outdoorsy. You really embody the Colorado spirit. Is that right? I do. That's actually why, you know, that's why I came out here uh, shortly after graduate school in my early 20s. And I, I just, I loved it here. I had never actually seen mountains uh, and, and been able to live so close to all the things that I love. And as a rock climber and as uh, someone who loves to ski and, and trail run and all these kinds of things, it's just such an amazing place to live. And to have the economic opportunity coupled with that is really phenomenal. So, in, in, and I mentioned a second ago, you are a, you're a scientist. Um, I know you, you uh, are a lecturer at the University of, is it University of Denver? Is that right? University of Colorado Denver. University of Colorado Denver. Okay. So as a scientist, can you confirm whether or not uh, current U.S. Senator Cory Gardner has a backbone? Does he, does <laughs> well, he possess know, a really, spine? I'd really need to see his scans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I just realized, I just, I just read that he's doing like an event with Trump in, in Colorado Springs coming up. Like, why, why did you get into it? How much like, I mean, you're, you're a young person, you're like, getting, you know, I know you've been, you've been in, um, teaching for a long time now, but I mean, why did you decide to like get into, into politics in the first place? Was it, was it largely because of Trump? Was it largely because of Gardner? Was it, was it a combination of both? What what was it? Yeah. You know, it's actually neither of those things. Uh, although certainly were an impetus for taking this much more seriously. This actually, you know, for me, politics is something that I grew up with, and I think a lot of people don't don't know this, but my father actually held office for 18 years. And so as a kid, I actually started campaigning and going to all sorts of board and town meetings and, and just kind of grew up with that idea. I thought everybody talked about wastewater treatment plants and recycling plants over dinner, you know, and uh, <laughs> it turns out they don't. <laughs> but but I, I just kind of grew up in that, and I, you know, even from a young age, was on the constitution teams and, and was able to go down and debate at the state legislature and, you know, just, just really got involved. And I think some of that is because I grew up in New Hampshire. So of course that's a heavy primary state. And, you know, at the time it was one of the first ones. And so, you know, I, I met every single presidential candidate as a kid. I remember shaking Bill Clinton's hand and, uh, you know, just, just, they would come out to our little tiny town and we'd have 30 people come out to the town hall. And, and I think, you know, I carried that over into college and started working and volunteering on campaigns and, you know, kind of assisting behind the scenes for a long time. And I would testify for bills at local city councils or whatever. And I think it's something that, for me, it really started developing more in about 2014, 2015, when I was through the science that I do. So I'm usually funded by the National Institute of Health and or the National Institute of Mental Health. And the projects that I happened to be on at the time brought me often to D.C. And so I started taking advantage of that opportunity and sitting in on the United States Senate Science Committee hearings as well as the healthcare and education committees. And what I found was that, 
you know, here we had had Cory Gardner, who had just been elected from the state of Colorado in 2014, and he was sitting actually on and sits to date on the United States Senate Science Committee. And I started realizing that not only him, but every single senator on that committee, there isn't a single scientist on the United States Senate Science Committee. And in the healthcare and the education committee, it was pretty similar, especially for healthcare. You know, Rand Paul is really your only person that's a quote-unquote expert in healthcare, and I, I certainly don't think he qualifies for any means. That doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, so this actually started for me because I, I, many years ago now, really wanted to start figuring out how do we, especially in the 21st century, when we are 20% of the way through now, this century, how do we start talking about and bringing better bridges between the scientific communities and legislators who make the policies. And so I set out, actually, I started auditing law classes and economics courses, and I started working with experts in various fields, and I started building uh, local initiatives here at the, the local and state levels with policymakers to try to pair experts with the people who are actually bringing these bills. Because what we found is that, you know, most of the time, what happens is that they don't have this expertise and they just rely on whoever their donors or their lobbyists are that are coming in and trying to push some type of position. And we simply can't do that anymore, particularly when we have science and technology that impact every area of our life. And when you think about this, right now we have senators, and we saw this when uh, Mark Zuckerberg was actually forced to testify uh, in front of in front of Congress. But you know, people were asking him things like, "So who connects the intertubes, and what is internet <laughs> commerce?" Right, right, right. And then you had another that would say things like, "So what is well when you email with this WhatsApp?" You know, and, and every millennial, you could feel the cringing, right? And and so it's just generations have changed, and we are in a digital age now, and we need policy that is going to come from that science and technological backgrounds in every area, whether you're talking about healthcare or addressing climate change, whether you're talking about cybersecurity and data protections, you know, all of these different things were really going to require scientific and technological expertise. And so that is actually how I got into this. Yeah, I, I think they referring to the the Zuckerberg coming in on the congressional. I th- I think I remember them having to wake up Chuck Grassley during his nap for that. Uh, that that um, no, you're right. There is this huge like like disconnect between. I mean, today, just today, as we're doing this interview, I read earlier that Antarctica uh, experienced the hottest day on record in the history in its history. Like it it it's. But to me, I'm I'm wondering though, like, you don't have to be a scientist to realize like climate change is real and we should really do something about it. How much of it is the fact that special interests, not just not being like scientifically inclined, but just special interests rue the day when it, you know, when it comes to making you know legislative decisions? I mean, do you feel like that is you know when it comes to like your your potential opponent and Gardner and, and other people? How much of that is a factor versus just a lack of scientific knowledge? Well, you know, I wish I could say that it wasn't a factor, uh, but unfortunately the reality is that it, it absolutely is, right? And this is actually one of the reasons why the campaign that we have built is powered by people. You know, I, I do not ascribe to the idea that corporations are people or that corporations should have the same voice as people. And it's something that we're really proud of to be able to actually leverage grassroots uh, to make this campaign effective so that we're actually fighting for people, you know, like my friends and families and neighbors. And, and it's, it's, 
people. It, it has nothing to do with anything other than what's good for us. And I think we see this a lot when it comes to uh, climate change in particular. So there's a lot of money that gets spent uh, lobbying for deregulation, in fact. Uh, and, and in fact, actually, my opponent, who happens to be a Democrat, and, and you know, this is where sometimes it crosses party lines even, but, uh, you know, happens to have worked in and is funded quite heavily by uh, the oil and gas industry and has therefore actively sought to deregulate and make sure regulations were not put in place here in Colorado. And in fact, a friend of mine actually uh, used to work as an inspector, a safety auditor for oil and gas, and, you know, explained to me once that when he moved here, uh, originally from Africa and then through Texas and ultimately to Colorado, he said when he hit Colorado, it was the first time that they were ever measuring safety of proximity of industrial operations for oil and gas by meters. And, wow. and feet, and wow. not by miles. Right. Wow. And that is something that we see in large part because this opponent happens to be, uh, it was the former governor, and he happens to, to be heavily funded by them. And in fact, he has many uh, millions worth of money that he has made in blind trust by investing in companies like Exxon, etc. And so you, you cannot uncouple that money is absolutely tied to policy, and it's why we're I particularly am a huge proponent for campaign finance reform and political reform in general uh, and making sure that the people have the opportunity to have their voices heard. And it goes beyond that because there's a lot of active voter suppression that happens as well that happens to tie into that technological space. And I don't know if you might have read this yet, but uh, there was a report that just came out in The Atlantic. It's a phenomenal piece. I highly recommend everyone read it. And it's regarding how the Trump campaign is actually working to leverage uh, the existing work from Cambridge Analytica and then, uh, you know, carrying it forward and specifically leveraging social media platforms and technology to micro-target and create false narratives and, and these huge sweeping disinformation campaigns and potential things that we can, you know, kind of try to start talking about doing with it. But I think, you know, so it's, it's not just the money, it's also how things get tied into the deregulation that we see in terms of what people are allowed to do on campaigns. Right, right. And that's the thing. It, it seems like the Trump administration and you know, this current Senator Gardner in, who's in place now, I mean, it is, it is this whole, it's a, it's a good old boy system mixed with like a mob mentality. I feel like happening at the very top. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by Capital Grill, DC's wokest spot for flavor bombs that'll absolutely shred your digestive system. New dishes this month include the meat Buttigieg, a bucket of lean white meat chicken dunked in mayonnaise, the grillanya, a freezing cold swordfish that was prepared using only intimidation and a pair of tongs, and the Bernie Clamders, a fiery clam dish topped with powdered ibuprofen that'll have you saying, Dear God, why? Capital Grill, truly ponderful. Have we all become desensitized? Is there anybody left who wouldn't be surprised if a tidal wave came, or atom bombs rained, or trees turned to flames, or if presidents were game show hosts? You've been around the state. You've been around Colorado now. I think this is your third tour. Is that right? Going around, going around all, all sixty-four counties. Yeah. Did you yep. like? Did you decide to to run for Senate just so you could do like a lot of road trips? <laughs> is that? Well, no, <laughs> um, but I will say that uh, 
part of how I decided to design my campaign was that I knew early on, look, I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm a very planned and logical kind of person in a lot of senses. I mean, I have a lot of creative streaks, but, you know, at the end of the day, I do like making sure that I have a really solid plan. And uh, one of the things that I did was five years in advance of this election, I wrote out an Excel spreadsheet and I planned and I plotted and I thought about, you know, well, what are my values and how can I carry that forward? And I grew up in a small rural town. I'm actually the only person in this race that grew up uh, in a small rural town, which resonates quite immensely with a good chunk of Colorado because we are a very mixed um, urban and rural state, a very large state that has, has a lot of uh, differences depending on where you are, Eastern Plains, West Slope and everything in between. And I decided that actually talking to people and putting in the effort, uh, extra effort rather, to be able to actually talk with people one-on-one and have real conversations and not just say, here's a quick talking point, but here's what I learned on this part of the state and here's what I learned from this part of the state and let's cross-talk, let's cross-pollinate, let's start having these discussions as fellow Coloradans so that we can start understanding how we can move forward. And so we set out uh, on a 64 county, there are 64 counties here in Colorado, so it's a full statewide tour. And we did that as an exploratory tour to see if we had enough uh, interest to move forward, which we did. And then we launched in 2019, January, over the Women's March weekend for a formal one. And we finished our second tour about a month ago now. And so we are, we're on our third one. And and the thing that I hear from people all the time is, oh my gosh, you are everywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I see you everywhere. And I think what they're noticing is, you know, we are putting in that extra work and not only in person, but also through digital media options so that people can connect with us, uh, you know, from afar and things like that. Um, And we have tried to take some really good measures in our travels because again, we're trying as best as possible to uh, minimize the the damage that we do, so to speak. And so we actually um, try to find people who have electric vehicles so that they can actually volunteer as drivers with us mm-hmm. so that we are uh, minimizing our, our carbon footprint as much as possible in those travels. So, yeah, we've put a lot of efforts into it, and it's really quite incredible to hear uh, the same issues come up regardless of which part you are in the state. So, so I, maybe I missed that, but, like, so five years ago, did you know that you were going to run for office? I started thinking about it in 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'd been sitting in on those committees for a little while at that point and started just really feeling pretty frustrated that there wasn't enough being done and that really we needed someone from that scientific background especially, but also healthcare and education, uh, to, to be able to sit on these committees and, and crack the door and build the bench behind us. And so what I mean by that is I started thinking that the you know, the best way to really change what type of experts come in and what kind of policy gets made. It's not just the values, it's about the network that you bring. And so by my not being a law or business background, which is the vast majority of senators, I'm able to bring a new type of thinking and expertise to the same conversation and work with them in able to actually create really robust and thoughtful policy. And so I really wanted to get someone that was elected that could bring in alternative networks because they are ultimately the person that's in charge. And I couldn't have a voice just sitting in those committees. I had to sit there and listen as person after person would say, well, I'm not a scientist, mm-hmm. so, or I'm not a scientist, but I think this. Right. And then, you know, you'd see people bring in, heck, one, one guy brought in a, a snowball and said, <laughs> it's a snowball, it's cold. Right. Therefore, climate change, global warming must not be real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you're like sold. Yeah. It, it sounds, yeah. it sounds like, you know, a lot of that experience is, is like a Simpsons episode, you know, like it, it, you're having to listen to people who don't know what they're talking about. Do you, what is something though that you've learned being out? I know this is the first time you've run for office and, and I will say you bit off like, like to run for Senate the first time around. And I don't mean this the, the wrong way, but why did you decide to run for such a major office when like, if it was me, I, I mentioned it a minute ago, I'm from Florida, but like they used to, when I remember being a kid and I would see signs for uh, people running for mosquito control commissioner. And back then I was like, you know what? I could do that. You know, like, like I, I thought, you know, okay, that is, that is, that is, uh, first of all, insane that it's an office, but like an elected official. But to me, it was like, okay, well, this is, this is attainable. Like, and I don't mean that this isn't attainable at all for you, but I'm just saying it is a big undertaking to go across the state and talk to all these people. Why did you decide to do something that big your first time around? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think uh, for, for me, this has been something that sort of, again, it evolved over many years. And so it wasn't this sort of thing where just one day I was suddenly running. You know, there was really a five-year plan uh, that went into this. And I, I actually started openly on the uh, campaign trail exploring and considering this back in 2017. Uh, so, that, you know, there was a several years sort of gauging what it would be like, going around with 2018 candidates, helping all of them, speaking at the same time, getting to know people across the state, and really doing a lot of the work uh, that you would see in someone who, you know, was working their way up. So it wasn't so much of a just willy-nilly decision. It was it was yeah. something that, you know, was thoughtful and planned. But, but ultimately why I decided to do this particular seat was for a handful of reasons. And it came after uh, a couple years of conversations with senators, their chief of staff, uh, people who had been in, in politics for a long time, former state senators, et cetera. And, and I, I did that, right? Because the first thing I did as an expert myself is go to people that I felt like uh, knew the expertise of that system. And what we found is that, you know, everyone was pretty clear that there really is, first of all, no real and true preparation for federal politics, um, even if you've been on city council or something like that. It's just simply not the same. Washington's a different place. And because of the unique background that I was bringing, so the idea that uh, there's no scientist on that science committee in the U.S. Senate, and I'm a scientist, the idea that there is essentially no health care very little education experience, and I've worked in healthcare and in education through my career. The idea that there are very few women, the idea that there's nobody from my generation, uh, in fact, there's nobody under the age of 40 on the U.S. Senate, uh, all these different things started kind of adding up, and people felt like I had a plan that could actually attack something very well and actually find a niche that would have the highest contribution versus something like on a city council where a lot of that scientific and healthcare and et cetera expertise simply wouldn't be able to be applied. And so, you know, I, I went through the, that, that conversation very thoughtfully with people and, and would not have undertaken it if I did not feel like it was absolutely the best option to start. And how did, what's been the biggest surprise for you since you've been out on the, the campaign trail? Like, you know, going to every county multiple times. What have you, what's been the biggest surprise and like what have you learned so far since you've been out there? Gosh, you know, I don't know if I would say surprised so much. Um, you know, again, I, I grew up in, in 
politics with my, my dad. And so I knew that there would be a lot of hard moments. And, you know, I remember growing up and somebody would angrily call the house or, you know, somebody would, would stop us on the street or things like that, you know, like that kind of stuff happens. Um, so I don't think that kind of stuff was a surprise. I think the thing that was a surprise, because I'd been working behind the scenes in politics for so many years at that point, um, the thing that really surprised me the most was that I actually underestimated the, the level of bigotry that might come from the GOP. And so what I mean by that is, uh, for example, as we've developed a pretty substantial social media platform, we do get trolled quite significantly and we get targeted and, you know, we have a full-time tracker that follows to all, you know, he follows us to all these events. He's actually, a, you know, as far, as far as trackers go, you know, he's a nice fellow. He waves hello to me every time. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Um, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait, what, what is, who is it? What is, he's a tracker? A tracker. Uh, so a tra- yeah, sorry. So, um, so a tracker is someone that is hired by the opposition. So in this case, there's a PAC that supports Cory Gardner, and a tracker is hired. And to be clear, we do this on the Democratic side as well. And basically, a tracker is hired to follow and try to catch a candidate in some sort of misstep, try to you know, video everything that they do so they can edit it kind of oddly later and make it look bad or um, basically anything (laughs) that could potentially take you down and they will follow you. And we've heard horror stories in some cases. Um, You know, we've, I've talked to former state senators who have had things like uh, trackers take the lug nuts off their cars so they couldn't get between events in time. And, you know, this isn't legal, but it happens, right? Um, I've had people say, you know, there are trackers that rifle through people's trash trash cans and, you know, when they put it out on the curb for recycling or whatever, or, um, you know, just all sorts of things that, that they will do, filming filming inside windows from the house and, and whatever, right? And they're just trying to catch you in some kind of moment that could be embarrassing or undermine your campaign in some kind of way. And so I think, you know, this kind of stuff I underestimated a little bit in the sense of, um, I expected it, but it's uh, just it took a different form than I expected. And so, for example, uh, you know, some of the trolling we get online. If you're the GOP and you can make up anything about me, I did not expect them to try to go down and pander to their their base that uh, is anti LGBTQ. And so they have taken to calling me a lesbian as if it's an insult, which, to be clear, it's not. And I've I find it just appalling that it's given the opportunity to make up anything in the world. Right, right. The most appalling thing that they thought would resonate with their base yeah. is sexual identity. And I think that's just the surprising stuff. It's not that I underestimated it per se. It's just it's taking a different form than I would have expected. Um, and I, I think it just says a lot about the GOP today. You know, I, I think that's a, a really strong statement right there that just shows that's what they think resonates with their base the most. It's it's not my policies. It's not anything else. It's what what they uh, portray as my sexual identity. What? How do you handle that? Like that is. I'm sorry. That's. I didn't know that. Like I didn't know they actually. I mean, I feel like you have to obviously. Uh, they have to fear you to some level if they're they're sending out like a guy to like read through your trash can or whatever. You know, like but. How do you personally deal with that? Has that been uh, challenging for you personally to like, you know, do you read your, do you, do you stop reading the comments underneath your tweets? Well, you know, I am thankful that I have a team of volunteers who help call through the many, many, many tweets that we get and um, try to help, you know, probably shield me in some way from some of that. But no, I, I actually do see it and read a lot of them. And, you know, it's, it's never that, that fun, but I will say, you know, there's, there's something that you 
understand when you take on running for office, particularly a federal office, which is that you will be steamrolled. (laughs) And and there's no way around it, you know, and and there are going to be people who have never met you that love you. And there are going to be people who have never met you that just think you are the scum of the earth, the worst person ever. And it's usually not backed by any sort of actual information or thoughts or anything other than uh, some type of disinformation or label that leads them to think that. And, you know, that's, that's, more on them than it really is on me. And so I try just really hard to be thoughtful and mindful that, you know, this, this isn't uh, a reflection of who I am as a, as a person and as a human being. And it's just sort of part of the part of the game, so to speak. And I keep a circle of, of people who are close to me that can help, you know, make sure that on those weird days I can have somebody to call if I need to. That's cool. Um, I got one more big question before we get to uh, a, a section. I, I think I've told you about this before the interview. It's called five lazy. Qu- it's called lazy questions. I wrote in five minutes. <laughs> okay. And uh, it, it just shows you the amount of effort and time that I, I put in all this. But uh, no, I, I do have a question as far. I mean, you guys, it is a crowded field on the democratic side in the primary. Um, first of all, like what, what separates you? Uh, from from your competitors, and also I, I read that you know you've got a there's a caucus and then a primary. Is that right? Like in in Colorado, like why? I feel like it's an Avril Lavigne song. It's very complicated. Like why why is it so complicated? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's actually a great question. So let's let's start with that part first. So um, we do have a pretty complicated and and frankly, we're hearing from voters extremely confusing process this year, and this is the first time we've ever had it happen this way. So what's going to happen in Colorado is that on March 3rd, we now have, for the first time ever, we're going to have that Super Tuesday that we participate in a primary ballot for presidential candidates. And what's confusing to a lot of folks here in Colorado is that that was a, a, an initiative that people voted for. They thought they were removing the caucus at large such that unaffiliated would be able to participate in the primary. But what actually was happening is that uh, they, they voted actually to remove only the presidential caucus and create that presidential primary on a ballot form. So that's on March 3rd. And then four days later, and this is what's confusing people to no end, uh, so four days later on March 7th, we have the caucus. It's the same as always, except it's for Senate candidates all the way down ballot. And so they just simply removed the presidential and put a separate day via ballot. So March 3rd, March 7th for the caucus. And the caucus is where I'm going through. And I have to be able to achieve, via the caucus and the state assembly on April 18th, I have to be able to achieve a 30% uh, support from the, the caucus and state assembly goers. And so what that looks like is that, you know, we have to flood that caucus with our supporters and get the word out more than anything, because most people, again, still aren't aware in Colorado that they have to still show up on March 7th for caucus. And we need you to do that. You need to be a registered Democrat by February 14th, in fact, Uh, which is notable in Colorado because uh, about 40 percent of voters here are actually registered unaffiliated, and they are not able to participate in a caucus if they do not affiliate by February 14th. And then we would make the ballot, hopefully, Mm -hmm. uh, after that, and then that puts us on the June primary ballot for Senate and down-ballot candidates again because we would have already done the presidential. So it's a little bit confusing. Somebody has to show up multiple times <laughs> to be able to vote for us and get us on the ballot and then actually uh, check mark us on the June ballot uh, and then, you know, with any luck all the way through November versus Cory Gardner. So 
it is pretty complicated, but that is the process. And uh, people can certainly visit our website, Zorneo2020.com, if they have questions or contact us, because uh, we're, we're certainly trying to do a lot of education there. Regarding the crowded primary part, uh, yeah, so, you know, in particular, there's there's sort of a couple of us that have, you know, been, been really in this circuit for a while. And the interesting thing is that uh, the D.C. Democrats, so the DSCC, through Chuck Schumer and some others, uh, decided to actually recruit and endorse failed presidential candidate. Uh, you might recall him. That's the one I was referencing earlier, former Governor John Hickenlooper. Right. And you might remember he was the one that uh, got in a big fight with Bernie on stage. <laughs> right. they, they had a whole a whole little back and forth. Anyway, so uh, they recruited him into this race, and it really started flooding him with support and cash from D.C. And Coloradans are really upset about this because, you know, Coloradans of, of any state are pretty independently minded, and we don't like being told who we get as a candidate. Uh, we want to be able to choose for ourselves without any sort of interference. And so, you know, what's happened is that now my, my primary opponent actually is the former governor, uh, as well as, you know, a couple others. But, you know, the thing that kept me in this race, because we actually had, oh gosh, I don't know, maybe like almost a dozen candidates drop out after that uh, former governor got in. The thing that kept me in this race is that there is still, to date, no one in this race with a science, healthcare, education background. There's nobody else with a rural background in this race, which is immensely important to Colorado. And more than that, uh, you know, we've never elected a woman in over 140 years of statehood here in Colorado. And that is something that when we look at representation is incredibly important to me, uh, and especially in a time when we have someone holding the highest office of the land who is actively saying they grab women. We have, uh, you know, people who have now been appointed and confirmed to the Supreme Court who uh, have, have been charged with the same sorts of allegations. And, and more than that, we might even be fighting for things like Roe v. Wade and, and just basic women's rights. And so this is something that's, in addition to the science, healthcare, and education background, very uh close to me in terms of making sure that we're protecting women and, and moving that cause forward. Yeah, that that seems wild to me that Colorado's never elected a woman to, to the Senate. Like that that blows my mind. Why 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 is that in your opinion? You know, that's that's a great question. I mean <laughs> I think this is something that you know, we we understand the systemic nature of gender bias and it's sort of built in. And we are making strides in Colorado. You know, we have the first female led and female majority in our state house, which is incredibly exciting. Um, Speaker Casey Becker is is phenomenal and she's, you know, working with folks to make sure that 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 is something that stays the case. Um, You know, and and I think there's a lot going on behind the scenes where people are trying to elevate women. So I participated, for example, in a program called Emerge Colorado. It's actually Emerge America, but there's a Colorado chapter and they are actively training women and especially women of color to, to build from the ground up a swell that can carry over and it's women supporting women and it's incredibly powerful when you do it that way. Uh, and so I would encourage anyone who's thinking about running, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to Emerge Colorado or Emerge America if it's uh, beyond the Colorado borders, which incidentally does not border Mexico and we do not need a border wall here. <laughs> Even though Trump seems wildly confused about that. But, but uh, you know, I, I'd encourage young women, particularly who are, are coming out to, to get involved. And it's something that we've seen as I travel the state. Oh, it's this, we thing ever. I mean, it just is part of what keeps me going. I'll have young girls, you know, I had I had one girl who was eight years old and she ran up to me and she, she just said, I heard there was a scientist and there was a woman running for office and I I just want to be just like you, she says. And I, I just almost cried. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, 
phenomenal to be able to have these kinds of conversations. And I had a dad who brought his daughter and, and his, uh, his daughter's friend a couple hours. They drove a couple hours for this event that I was holding. And they, he said, you know, he sent me an email after we talked at the event. He sent me an email after and he said, I just want you to know that after the event, we had a two-hour, almost two-hour conversation on the fact that these, these two teenagers can do anything that they want. They, they can put in that effort and they can be anything that they want. And, you know, that was spurred because of seeing you. And I, I just, it's so humbling. And, you know, in some ways I feel not even deserved, but it's, it's absolutely part of why I'm doing this. Right. Right. I, I can only imagine, um, I've, I've never inspired anybody. So, uh, I can imagine, <laughs> I, I can imagine like that moment though. I mean, it, it really is to, to your point. It's like, uh, you know, the, obviously the destination is to, to make it into the U S Senate, but I think it seems like the journey of, of what you're doing is, has a lot of, uh, pretty cool rewards along with it. And that's, that's like one of them. So, yeah, actually it's funny you say that somebody actually just told me it was the journey that mattered even more than the destination. Can we know freedom without ever being changed? Today's podcast is brought to you by the Iowa tourism board. Will you be in our lovely state for the caucus? Be sure to check out one of our many fabulous landmarks, including the American Gothic House in Eldon, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Home in Burr Oak, the Mamie Eisenhower Birth Home in Boone, and the Davenport Claim House in Davenport. We have many old, mildly interesting, modest houses, and it's really, really just terrific. Hey, can we find a way to put caffeine in our corn? I'm falling asleep over here. But if I really want to get through the gate, I got to try to be kind to all the people I hate. And I've been feeling like a soldier on the edge of the earth, weighing every movement to decide what it's worth. And now I'm done looking back and I'm vetting my facts and I'm fixing this crap so the world isn't scrap. Well, let's uh, let's get to something that is almost as is inspiring. Uh, these are the super lazy questions that I wrote in five minutes. <laughs> Uh, Trish and uh, again before we get to that I just want pe- people to know Trish Zornio you check, her, check her out at Trish underscore Zor- Zornio on Twitter you have quite the following and uh, and I know you've got it sounds like some trolls along with it but um, but uh, check you out and then where, they can go to your website too as well which is uh, Zornio2020.com and, uh, and even if they don't live in the state of Colorado they can help you out is that right? That's true. Yep. Awesome. And this is actually going to be a national race. This has to be, in fact. Uh, this is no- one of the number one seats uh, for the U.S. Senate to flip. And specifically, there are a few reasons for that. One, uh, this actually dropped in his approval rating to as low as 33% now. Uh, that's lower than Trump. I always I would say, like, how bad at your job do you have to be to be worse <laughs> than Trump? But, uh, yeah, so there's that. And then we also went full blue for the first time in 2018. So that is a big movement forward for Colorado. And in 2016, it's important to remember that Coloradans uh, vastly went blue over Trump. So there is not a lot of support for him, even though Trump is coming in and campaigning and Cory Gardner has endorsed him. Cory Gardner is on thin ice, and we are going to need national help to make this race work. That's, uh, that's, that's true. And I, I will go on the, your site. I'll, I'll chip in as well. And I think everybody should, if they hear this. And, and by the way, if you do live in the state of Colorado, like Trish mentioned, March 7th is your date. Okay. March 7th. I don't understand why they, you guys have to make it so complicated over there, but, uh, nonetheless. But March 7th. 
Five seventh. <laughs> All right. So on the super lazy questions I wrote in five minutes. Uh, first off, I have to ask, uh, Trish, you and I, you know this is coming, uh, but you are a classically trained pianist. A pianist. <laughs> I always I am. Say. And composer. Um, I think we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make sure that we get some piano uh, into this podcast of people recording of you playing. But do you think uh, I don't know if you warmed up the pipes before the the show here? But uh, do you think you could do like a little number for the people out there listening right now? <laughs> you know, so when you talked about this about doing that, I thought, oh my goodness, do you really want me to sing? I've not absolutely sung, I've not really been a singer since I was, you know, mostly in musical theater in high school. Uh, yeah, so a lot of people do not know, but I actually do run a community music program here in Boulder County uh, in Colorado, and I have for almost a decade now. And it's something that I got started in because I used to actually be, long before I got into science and, and sort of became a hobby, but I used to be a classical pianist, and I used to do a lot of jazz choirs and orchestra and all sorts of fun stuff. So um, I will give it a go, but I will just say, please do not vote for me based on whether or not you like my singing. <laughs> I promise that is a small component, and I promise not to, uh, well, I won't promise not to ever do it again, because if somebody asks me, I guess I could, but uh, yeah, don't, don't vote for me based on that. Um, but I did think, uh, what could we possibly do that might be interesting and timely? And so there was a favorite jazz standard that I used to have. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald gave it a go and a bunch of other famous jazz singers. And it's, it's pretty seasonal. It's called My Funny Valentine. So I will do a very expediated version of that one uh, and, and kind of cut out some of the middle just to, to make it a little more fun. So, all right, let me see if I can okay. get ready here. All right, all right. You want, do you want a little intro? Right. Do you want a little... I can do a little like, uh, you know, come in, you know, come to the stage, uh, you know, something like that for you if you want, or you just get ready go, to go for it. Right. Classically trained. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> you ready on that side? Okay. I'm ready. All right. So, uh, you may know her from the, the community theater. Uh, it's been a few years. She's been warming up the pipes in the back. She's a classically trained pianist. She's a composer. And right now on the Justin News Podcast, she is going to take over your ears, folks. Give it up to Trish Sornio. My funny valentine, sweet comic valentine, you make me smile with my heart. Your looks are laughable, Photographable, yet you're my favorite work of art. But don't change a hair for me, not if you care for me. Stay, little Valentine, stay. Oh. Each day is Valentine's Day. <laughs> All right, there you go. <laughs> I have not sung that in probably about 15 years, just for the record. Well, that was beautiful, <laughs> and uh, I, I am recording this, so uh, I plan to play it back whenever I need to just relax, you know, take a... <laughs> Take a little stress out of out of my life right there. Uh, that was beautiful. Great job. 
Great Thank job. You. I get very nervous singing in front of people, though. So there's a little shakiness in there. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I mean, you're, you're, uh, I like how you're running for, you know, this huge office and like it, but it's, it's just, you know, a little, a little song that makes you nervous. You did. That was awesome. That was fantastic. Um, I want well, kind of on this note, by the way, this is uh this is the VH1 storytellers podcast. If you're listening guys, um, we just, <laughs> we just do cuts from, po- I wish there were more politicians who could sing. Cause that would be, that would be like half my show right there. <laughs> Yeah, that would be quite the uh, blooper reel, I think. We get we get some folks on here. You know, I I was just uh, I was listening. I was reading a comment on the the podcast I just did with with Andrew Gillum last week, and somebody, yeah, you know, there are some real like wonky people out there who want to hear like policy stuff, and then there are other people who like listen to the podcast for the first time and they don't know anything about politics. But I feel like like if you can sing, like you can you make everybody happy right there. Like everybody, at least listening to my podcast will be happy to hear you sing. Cause, uh, cause it shows a different side. And I'm wondering my second question here, how much did like arts education play into your education growing up? And like, how did, how much does that matter? I know you're a scientist and now you're a politician, but like arts education, I think is a not, not as talked about type of thing. And, and I'm wondering like how much it's played into yeah. your life. Yeah, for for me, it's it's a very deeply personal thing. In fact, uh, especially because I do a lot of composition and I, I do write a lot of music, uh, or at least a little less now, but but have in the past written quite a lot. Um, you know, I think it's something that if you go all the way back to when I was a little kid, and and this is maybe something that you know, again, most people don't don't know, but I grew up with a piano that was actually gifted to my family by the woman who sponsored us coming to the United States. So I'm first generation here. Oh, wow. And when my, yeah, so when my grandparents had about a sixth grade education and my grandmother was this phenomenal seamstress and this very well-to-do woman who had graduated from Stanford University and um, just, she was on the board of, I think it was the Boston Symphony or, or one of the orchestras there. And she brought my family, she sponsored them over because she really wanted my, my grandmother to, to be a seamstress for her. And when they came, they really had nothing. They didn't even speak English. They had my dad, who was about maybe four or five years old. And one of the things that happened was that uh, this woman who sat on this board, they were getting rid of their piano uh, in Boston at the, at the symphony or the orchestra, whichever one it was. And they decided to somehow convince them to gift as a welcome to America and a thank you to give my family who was living in like her back shed at the time and had no musical bone in their body, a piano that was this orchestral grand, beautiful piano. And my family, as they, you know, ultimately were able to save up and buy a house over the years and all these things, this piano just stayed there. Um, and they had, you know, my aunt, uh, decided to learn how to play and she, she passed away actually before I met her, but, uh, she was the only one who ever really played it. And so it just sat for a really long time until many years later I came around and then I sat down one day and I was just captivated and enamored with, with this instrument. And they decided, well, maybe she plays piano. <laughs> and fine. so they got me, they got me these uh, piano lessons and, and it started from there. It was actually really hard because the closest piano teacher was quite, quite far away, although she was really wonderful because uh, we lived in the middle of nowhere. And so, you know, for me, there was a lot of sacrifice around, bringing music into my life. My, my family would drive me, you know, four hours to attend 
a symphony every couple of years down in Boston and um, really try to make the extra effort because they could tell that for whatever reason this really resonated for me. And it's something that actually in later years, which I could have never expected, uh, I was a dual major in college to start classical piano and science. I started out as analytical chemistry major. And what was strange is that I could have never anticipated by the time I went to graduate school and I had sort of left music behind as a formal career. Music is in part what got me some of the positions that I had. I was able to relate to people on a personal level, you know, even from the research background and and get them to trust that I had this capability, that I could demonstrate hard work uh, and all of these things through, I think, a lot of my piano. And, And it was this really phenomenal thing that was able to happen and I think was one of many things that allowed me to kind of help break through. And for me, it's able to just change the way I think about things creatively and, uh, you know, it dovetails with science so nicely. And so it's just a huge part of who I am. And and it's, uh, when we talk about STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, I really often also like, uh, what some people will refer to as STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics, because I I think you can't have a full life without, without the arts. Right. Right. No, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, that, that is, uh, I interviewed, um, Ben Folds, uh, musician Ben Folds a while back and mm-hmm. he has a podcast devoted to arts education and, and he was, um, he's been interviewing a lot of the candidates for president and some of their, um, you know, the people close to them who, who speak for them. And so, um, you know, I, I, it was through that, like, I, I also gained a, a, like how much that arts education matters and has an effect when it comes to so many other different things, you know, and, um, yeah. I, I, now I'm going to ask you a very basic question, but do you have like a mainstream musician that's uh, like a, you know, features a lot of piano that you, that you like that people would, would maybe know about? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I actually, I don't only compose classical. I, I often will compose, um, sort of like a, like a pop indie kind of sort of side of things, but more like singer songwriter stuff. And the, the, person that I would say comes to mind the most is Sarah Bareilles, who I just think is phenomenal. And I would say that uh, I actually play a a bunch of her songs and I I just, I love them so much. And her voice is just so much better than mine. It's it's, she's just amazing. But, um, you know, I've also just, I have a handful of things that I've written that I think would be a little bit closer to some of her style. So I, I just think she's phenomenal. That's, that's, she's, she's fantastic. I think she's from like the, I lived up in, so I'm, I lived up in Northern California, moving back there in a little while, but, um, but, uh, I think she's from like the Redwoods, I want to say, she's from like way up there. Um, you know, that's interesting. I don't, I don't actually know. I, I have looked much more into her music and her recent endeavors, <laughs> uh, especially into some of the musical theater and all these just really phenomenal things she's done with her career. And I've been able, you know, cause age wise we're fairly similar. And so I've been able to kind of, you know, watch her for, for quite some time and, and, you know, I don't think I actually knew much about how she grew up. See, see, you you know the technical. I read Wikipedia pages. Like, I spend half my time <laughs> on Wikipedia, so I know very random facts about people. Um, what is, okay, this is a song I have to, or this is, a, this is a question I have to ask each time. What is okay. What is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, my gosh. Um, I haven't actually done karaoke in a long time, but I will say... 
if I were to go do karaoke, because I'm, I'm a terrible person for karaoke, because I'm not good enough. Hold on, hold on. You just, you just did, you just did like a song right here on the podcast. What are you talking about? Yeah, but here's, but here's why. So, so karaoke is not meant for people who can actually keep a tune, but not be good enough to like actually really be like, (laughs) Oh my God, what just happened? You know, karaoke is best when you're kind of not so good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Right. And there's, there's sort of that, that humor there. So I, I do enjoy every now and then going out, but, but I will say it's uh, not something I've done for a while, but, um, I have just been enamored lately with the shallow duet with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. And I think that one, I don't even know if it's a karaoke song, but I think that would be particularly fun. Can I just, can I just give you a recommendation? Uh, getting hammered helps a lot when you're doing karaoke. (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't drink a lot. Um, I'm actually, I always joke, I'm the worst Italian ever. I don't, I don't actually drink a ton and I'm a massive lightweight because I'm very small. Don't drink a ton, but, uh, I will, I will keep that under advisement. Just saying, if you're going carry, you know, maybe when you win the nomination, right, then, then, (laughs) then they'll really be trolling you. They'll get, they'll get, I think I'll just invite. I think I'll just invite Sarah Bareilles and let her sing. There you go. There you go. Yeah, she'll come out at that point. Like, yeah, you'll you'll be able to pull I, I some hope so. uh, A couple more here. Your favorite TV show growing up? But you and I are writer. I think right in the same time frame here. So I'm, I'm wondering. Personally, I'm wondering what your favorite TV show was growing up. So I'm probably not the best person to ask for that. We did not get a lot of TV stations. It was sort of one of these, like there was a satellite dish on the top of the house. We lived Mm. in the middle of the woods on a mountain. My dad built a cabin. And there was a, you know, we had the little thing inside where you turn the dial and you could hear it rotating on the top. (laughs) 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 Um, And it was based on whatever, you know, could come in that day. So, you know, I don't know that we had a lot of, a lot of shows growing up, but I will say, um, I did have a favorite, I had two favorite movies that are, Probably not super typical, but some people might know Anne of Green Gables. Mm. I just thought that series was phenomenal. I identified with Anne immensely, Anne with an E. That's actually my middle name. Ah. And so I really liked her. And then I also had this, I don't, you know, I've always been fascinated by language, uh, especially. And so I don't know if you know this, but Rex Harrison and Audrey Hepburn in the 1960s did uh, My Fair Lady as a musical and I was the weirdest little kid that just thought that film was phenomenal <laughs> and, and I would watch it over and over and over again on repeat. So there was That's definitely funny. some of that. I did grow up with friends and I recently saw that they might uh, do a reunion. So that could be fun. Right. Right. Yeah. No, friends was a, that was a real fixture in my, like that's that like theme song still comes, like it still rings in my head sometimes when I'm out running. I'm like, Oh crap. Yeah. Well, well, I got to ask you this though, cause you are, um, you, so I graduated high school when I was, uh, in 2003. Okay. And one of the things I like to do is look back at what songs were popular back then. And I, I want to say you're around that same time, right? So I'm wondering, so, so this is a bit of a, this is a kind of like a small music quiz. Okay. Uh, yeah. We it, actually graduated the same year, but again, you have to keep in mind that I was pretty, off grid. <laughs> I know. So, I know. I, I you, you know, we got different stuff, but the Backstreet Boys might have been a favorite of mine in middle school. Really? Jewel. Um, oh, <laughs> oh, you know what? I mentioned Jewel in an Instagram post one time and she hearted it. I just, I'm not, I'm not trying to brag wow. here. I'm not trying to brag here. I'm just saying she hearted my Instagram post. I, I'm, 
pretty I sure you. you're famous right then and there for that. There I I was ready to retire when when I saw that. Yeah. I really was. <laughs> uh, if I can get Sarah Bareilles to retweet this thing, then then I'm I'm done. I'm absolutely done after that. So. Oh my gosh, Sarah! I will. Yeah, absolutely. I will feel. I can probably retire if that happens too. <laughs> I'll, make, I'll make a I'll make a hard effort at that after after we're done publishing this. Uh, which song was not in the billboard top 30 in 2003 i'm gonna give you four choices okay into club god i'm so white into club by 50 cent landslide by the dixie chicks i'm with you by avril lavigne or hey ya by outcast i mean i know all of those songs yeah, I, mean, I don't. I don't know if I know which one was not on the top billboard in two thousand three. Though I'll give you one. One was not two thousand three. One was two. Uh, yeah, I, I, I gathered. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I know. I'm not a fucking idiot, Justin. Eh? <laughs> that, that part I got. I just don't know which one it would be. Uh, Avril Lavigne was definitely in high school, yeah. and I remember. But I don't. She certainly extended beyond high school, so I don't. That could be. I don't. I have no idea. Um, I don't remember when 50 Cent had his hits. It, was, it, was it high school or college? He, looking through some of these lists, let me tell you, he had like every other song on the list. It was ridiculous. Yeah. He, he, had a, he, was on, he was on a tear for like... I, I, think, you're, I think you're just, you, you had probably just better take this one. <laughs> no, no, no. You, it's multiple choice. Come on. You, you got to pick one. You got to pick one. We got, again, All right. we got so, 50 so Cent, 50, 50. Dixie Chicks, Avril Lavigne, or Outkast. I'm going to go with Outcast. Boom. You nail it. It's Outcast. Okay. Hey, yeah. Uh, because the others I was thinking, I remember definitely being in high school. Was, so what year was the Outcast that, one? That was 04. That was 04. That was 04. Yeah. I was thinking, I was like, I thought they came later, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> um, sorry. If I, 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 Next time I'll hone in. Next time we talk, I'll hone in. On, I'll just, we'll, the, we'll do the whole thing, and it'll just be Sarah Bareilles trivia. So... <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think I just don't fill my brain space with this kind of stuff. I, you know, I, <laughs> is... honestly, I I enjoy it. I think it's interesting, but I try to just let it fall right back out because I can just look it up on Google. You're, you're 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 trying your hardest not to just be like Justin. I'm smart, okay? I don't waste my damn time on Wikipedia pages <laughs> like you do. No, no, no. I get it. No, I just. I know what the I subtext just, is. I am a classic millennial that's like, why? I don't need to memorize these kinds of facts. They can just fall out because, seriously, Google. I can say, hey, Siri. And actually, she's probably going to come on right now. But, uh, you know, I can say that. And, <laughs> and within about two seconds, I can have that answer. It's, I, which I, I should have done, no, incidentally, and I did not do. No, you, you're doing it right because you, you have a, a great career. You're running to be a U.S. senator. And, and literally, my brain is just filled with, like, baseball stats so you know you were doing you're doing the right yeah it's 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 really no good for anything like once in a while on like a, at a trivia night at a bar you know i can uh i can hold my own but that's it that's about it so see i'm i'm terrible at trivia though because these are the things that i just i'm like hey google <laughs> and i i've just decided that is not where i i just i don't know i'm not the trivia person for sure i enjoy it though i do enjoy trivia 
it's fun. It's a good, it's like a good way to get people together. You know, it's a good way to, mm-hmm. um, my last question for you is you are from New Hampshire. We have the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday. Who do you like in New Hampshire? And is there a candidate so far? I'm not going to ask you to endorse anybody, but is there a candidate that's, that's, or candidates that have stood out to you as far as like, you know, wow, they're really impressive. Yeah, you know, I think the thing that I really just want to encourage everyone to remember is that at the end of the day, uh, each of these candidates is not only immensely better than Trump, but each one actually brings their own strengths. And I will tell you this, though. Uh, in talking with a lot of friends and family in New Hampshire, I've been uh, they, they sort of let me know that there are two candidates in particular that are standing out to them. And they're especially looking at Elizabeth Warren and they are looking at Amy Klobuchar. And I think that that is a really telling thing from a state that is uh, not traditionally particularly blue. And I think that is also very telling from a state uh, that has been very independent in nature and is willing to sort of take, you know, by and large, uh, look, our, our slogan is live free or die, right? Like people are, are pretty independently minded and they don't like to be told uh, what they're going to get. And so I, people tend to look fairly critically. And I think it's really interesting that, that those are the two that I'm hearing from the pockets that I grew up, uh, friends and family that people are interested in. I do hear some support for Biden. I also hear uh, some support for uh, Pete Buttigieg, but a lot less. And incidentally, because New Hampshire is so close to Vermont, a lot of people are actually not super keen, um, at least from what I'm hearing from afar, uh, on Sanders, which is interesting to me. But I guess it's because they feel like they uh, knew a lot more about him from his past time as as mayor and his extended career, and, and they just felt like, they wanted to change and wanted something else. So I, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. That's just one sample. And I, you know, certainly don't take that to be the end all be all, but that's what I'm hearing from a lot of the folks that I, I know from the area. Can I tell you, your analysis is, is by far more reliable than any poll that's currently out there. So, <laughs> well, it's a, it's a small ed, but we're giants. It's pretty, I mean, you're, you're as good as any sort of Iowa caucus poll or any Iowa caucus in general. So, um, well, uh, Trish Zornio, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, again, uh, I encourage people to, to check you out on Twitter um, at Trish underscore Zornio. And uh, is it Zornio2020? Trish Zornio2020.com. And uh, go help her out. This is a national campaign. Um, and obviously, as a senator, you would be obviously representing the state of Colorado, but, uh, but, but all of us. And, and so um, we really, really want, yeah. want you in Washington and uh, cleaning up the, <laughs> the pollution that is Washington and, and the world. Um, and yeah, you, and thank be, you so much. Be the, first, be the first woman and the first scientist to ever represent Colorado. That'd be so awesome. It would be phenomenal. I mean, think about what the Trump legacy, you know, has, has already built, right? This denigration of facts and reason and science. And imagine if we could start fighting from the core, the heart of it, that the facts actually do matter and that, you know, we actually do need to acknowledge the science. So it, it would just be a, a really huge shift. And, uh, and, and playing, playing you out at your, uh, at your acceptance, you know, speech when you win it all, Sarah Bareilles. <laughs> So. I see would definitely be my choice. <laughs> <laughs> Trish, thanks again. And uh, yeah, we, uh, we look forward to seeing how everything plays out in March and, and hopefully uh, getting you in Washington come November. Thank you so much. Really, really great to be here.